The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. Today I sit here, uh, the day before releasing this show, and I'm kind of reflecting. It's a milestone episode, and it's kind of funny that I really don't have a lot to say about it other than, you know, my continued thanks for your support. You know, I keep saying it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for supporting. And uh, thanks for sticking with me. This is episode 100, and I started this this show a while ago. It's almost two years since I uh, really started recording episodes. It's about 18 months since I released my first five episodes, which I did completely by accident one day. And, and I, uh, I, I was learning on the fly and I, and I put these five episodes out there and I, and I thought, well, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll release those when I get around to it. And then I woke up to a text from a friend and, uh, he said, man, those episodes are great, but you got to work on some of the other stuff. And I, I, I thought to myself, what episodes? And, and I said to I sent him a text back and I said, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, your, your stuff's out there. I found it. And, uh, well, that's how the, the show started. <laughs> you know, I, I was still learning, still trying to figure stuff out. And all of a sudden my, my first five shows are out there and I'm getting feedback. So it was kind of a soft opening if, in parlance of, of restaurants or stores. And it grew from there. It took off. I was amazed that these people with these with these fascinating stories and these these you know these incidents, these traumas, these these recoveries, the growth. I'm just fascinated and and blown away by the fact that they they wanted to and they still want to share these things with me. Um, I'm just some dude with a microphone and. I get to hear these stories that are heartbreaking at times, but they, um, man, they really, they kind of rebuild my belief in this, this human race because I listen to it and I listen to how these people persevered and overcame and, and how they, they stick to it. And they, they, they come out of the other side of all of this more determined and more, I don't know, more eager for life. And I applaud each and every one of them. You know, I, um, I'm not able to keep in touch with everybody because it's so, it's so daunting to think of it that way. Every once in a while I reach out, you know, to random guests and past guests and just say, just check in. I did it with, uh, I did it with Chris Monroe the other day and it was funny. Uh, he, he didn't have my number in his phone. He didn't know who I was at first. And then we went back and forth and it was good to hear that Chris is doing well and, and life is treating him well, and he's he's still active in the fire department, and he's he's still seeing some shit, and and he's he's learned better ways to overcome it. And you know, if you haven't listened to Chris's episode, go back all the way to episode one and listen to Chris Monroe. I guarantee you, you're going to listen to it, and you're going to pardon the the you know the technical aspect of it because I was like I said, I was learning, I had no idea what I was doing, but you're going to listen to his episode, and your jaw will drop. And you'll think to yourself, the same exact thing I thought to myself, how did he get back up each time? How did he get back up? But the, the human fortitude and that desire to, to push forward and to stay on the face of this earth is, it's amazing. These people, these stories, these 
transformations, these recoveries, they're amazing. I keep saying that word amazing, but that's what it is. It's nothing short of amazing. And I'm so grateful that, that people take a couple of hours out of their lives to sit down and get to know me for a minute and open up and share some of these darkest secrets and, and experiences with me and then talk about where they are now and how they are treating life and how are they, how they're celebrating life and how they're, you know, they're just taking it all in and they're, they're grabbing it and running with it. And if that's the only thing that people take away from this show is live your life and live it to the fullest, then I've won. This show was won. That's exactly what I want. You know, you turn around, you go through adversity you, you, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and you get your ass back out there and you start winning at this game of life instead of letting life beat you down. I'll be honest. I, I I'm still learning that I, I have let life beat me down. I've had an active role in some of that, but some of it has also come my way and, and, um, it's knocked me is hit me straight in the, in the chin and it stunned me and, and, and. I am making that turnaround and I'm trying to, trying to move forward. And what did I say? One step at a time, right? Um, it's not going to be perfect. Growth is not linear. Recovery is not linear. But as long as you're moving in that general direction of forward or up, then you're doing the right thing. And God damn it, it's tough, but it's well worth it. You know, don't sit back and let life come at you. Take the battle to life and get out there and enjoy it. You know, live that with, without regret. And I know that that's, again, it's a cliche saying, but Jesus, you got to get out there and live without some regret. And, you know, I'm not saying hurt people. I'm not saying tear people down. I'm not saying do damage, but live your life. Do no harm. Take no shit. Right. It's something I'm learning the do no harm part, especially, you know, I, I, I have my own amends to make and I've made many of them but you know from this moment forward from that moment forward from a few months ago forward whatever it is it's do no harm take no shit live your life and I just wish the entire world could be that way live your life and do no harm it kind of get gotten off tangent and, and on on a tangent excuse me but like I said before, I've come into these intros and I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about. All I know is that this is, this is a milestone. It's my hundredth episode. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about where the show's going. Uh, I'm working, still working on the changes to the show and the format and some of the services that I want to put out there for people to take advantage of. Um, you know, take a listen to today's show. Take a listen to all the past episodes. Join the conversation on Instagram. Um, uh, you can find the show at the things we all carry. And there's a broadcast channel that I'm trying to engage people more and more on. And sometimes it's ridiculous. Sometimes it's just me in a, in a cold plunge or on a bicycle or whatever it is. But, you know, I, I put questions and polls out there and I want to, I want to see where people are. Uh, I want to connect with people more. I, um, I put it out last week for people that wanted to join for a, for a pop-up episode, basically a, a, a hangout, I called it. Uh, I did it with TJ from keep the promise podcast. You know, I had, I had two other people join in and then we went live on Instagram as well. Uh, I want to do some more of that stuff. And the only way I can do that is from your participation and your involvement and your feedback. It's so important to me. And 
I look forward to it. I look forward to hearing from you guys. I look forward to talking to you guys. I look forward to interacting with you guys. And again, it, it sounds strange because this is coming from an introvert and, and it wears me out at times, but I, man, I look forward to it. You guys are, are what keep this show going. And I hope to hear from more of you. So reach out to me on Instagram. Like I said, at the things we all carry, join the broadcast channel, join the conversation, be part of this. Let's, let's, let's just figure out life as we go. You know, let me hear what's going on in your world. You'll hear what's going on in my world, my world. And, uh, let's just try and get out there and kick some ass together. So that being said, welcome to episode 100, 100 of the things we all carry. Today's episode is with Ben Vernon. He's a fire captain out of San Diego. I mean, I'm not going to go into his complete background. He's been on the job for, for roughly 20 years between career and volunteer. He's lived one of those lives that he, he, he started out, not sure where he wanted to go. So he gave something to try that led to something else that led to something else led to firefighting. And he's done a little bit of everything in this job. Ben is a, a kind of a renowned public speaker now for what happened to him on the job eight years ago. He responded to a medical call and on that call, there was an altercation with a bystander and this bystander ended up uh, stabbing Ben and a, and a coworker and one of his crew members. And it all happened in the span of like less than five seconds. Ben tells his story. He, he walks us through that attack. He walks us through that call. He walks us through kind of the seconds after the attack when he became not just a first responder, but now he became a patient and he was also still trying to care for his coworker and how he gets to the hospital, how he recovers physically, but more importantly, what he finds to recover emotionally and get his head straight to get back into the job and stay on the job and get to where he is today. This story is, um, it's a, it's, I don't want to say amazing again, cause I've overused that word. It's, it's fascinating, you know, that this happened. He, he admits that, you know, there were some mistakes made and it, it, it kind of snowballed to what happened. Um, but what happened was an attempted murder and he and his crew member survived that. And he is here today. He goes out, he speaks to organizations. He speaks to conferences. He is, uh, he's traveled the world over and he, um, he's actually due to go to Australia, which was a goal of his, he's good to go to Australia this year and, uh, kind of makes his own self titled. Now he's a public speaker cause he's made it, he's made it to Australia. Um, and you'll hear him talk about that in the episode. Ben is a, an engaging person. He is a dedicated first responder. He's a, he's dedicated to mental health and, uh, he tells this story very well. It's engaging. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's fascinating. And I'm thankful that he recovered from his injuries and he stayed on the job and that he's sharing his experience with all of us. It's something that we see more and more today, violence in the workplace, violence at, at, against first responders. And it's something we need to be very aware of. And we need to, you know, that old adage, keep your head on a swivel when you're on these calls, you never know what's going to happen. Get ready for this, this episode. It's a good one. And you guys tell me what you think, share your thoughts, sh give me your feedback. And, um, uh, I'll see you next week on episode 101. But for now, sit back and enjoy episode 100 with Ben Vernon. A quick reminder to please help us build a community, which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. 
reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Or give you a demotion without you having an demotion. All right, so how do you feel? You ready to go? Yeah, man, let's do this. All right, so welcome back to the things we all carry. Today, I am honored to have uh, Captain Ben Vernon on the show with me. He is a 17 year well, career, correct? 17 years as a career firefighter, correct, Ben? And yes, 20 altogether? Yes. And you're running out of San Diego City, which uh, you're my second guest from San Diego City. And uh, the audience probably remembers Kevin Easley coming on and, and kind of blowing me away with the story. And I, I have a feeling that they're going to kind of be blown away by this one as well. Um, you have a different <laughs> angle and, and it's, uh, it's one that I think is more of a concern than, than ever before, I think, in the fire service. And we'll get to that part of the story as we, as we start to tell it. But uh, first, good morning. Welcome to the show and uh, happy holidays, sir. Yeah, thank you. Good morning to you and happy holidays to you. How, how was your Christmas? It was good. And you and I were just talking. I want to give the audience a, a word of warning that you're going to hear some coughs and probably some voice breaks. Uh, we're both getting over colds. I just got my voice back. And you can probably still hear it. I sound like a, I'm down from a two pack a day smoker to about a half a pack a day. So, um, at least I'm not cracking like a, like a teenager. That's the way it was right before Christmas. So we're both kind of under the weather or recovering from being under the weather. So if you guys hear some coughs or some throat clearings, we, we apologize, but I'll give you that warning up in advance. That way I don't have to hit the mute button too often today. Just like that on cue. Hope it out. So I yep. have a bag of Valley Ranchers beside me so I can keep my throat from acting up. Um, so let me, we'll start with music. And I told you, I gave you a word of war, a little warning. I gave you about a five minute warning on this one. What was the last song you heard, sir? Um, so I, I commute about an hour to work. So I've become a huge Pandora fan. And right now I've been enjoying, um, Fleetwood map radio. So just listening to Pink Floyd and Fleetwood Mac and um, just every band from that era has been getting me, should put me in a good mood when I get to work, you know? Yeah, I, I vacillate between using my hour commute for music or for just peace and quiet. And it go it, it comes and goes. So I either, I either don't listen to anything or I have some music on in the background. So I, I understand that taking advantage of a commute to, to, to kind of center yourself. That and uh, I have become a huge podcast and audiobook uh, fan, and that I've turned that hour commute both to work and back just into my own little zen place, you know, to to just lose myself in podcasts and audiobooks, which I just absolutely love. So it, you make it for a captive audience, and so that's perfect. Yeah, exactly. And and um, you know, I started listening to a really good podcast, and then I park at the fire station and instead of going in to give my relief i'm in the parking lot you know listening to some story or a chapter or a something and you know a captain comes out it's knocking on the window like hey man are you gonna relieve me or what I'm like <laughs> yeah. oh sorry yeah yeah how long have i been in the parking lot so in a minute let me do what i have to do yeah <laughs> you, you get old time get some overtime relax right exactly yeah speaking of overtime i know you're coming off of, of 96 straight so it's it's been a hell of a run for you 
Yeah, our department, I don't, I know this is nationwide, so I won't complain, but we were short staffed for so long. Um, we call them mandatories where mm -hmm. you get forced to work. You guys call them the same thing? Oh yeah, mando days. Yeah. So I mean, we've gone the ups and downs, but the mandos have just been atrocious over the last 10 years. They're, they're slowing down a little bit, a little bit to where you get mandoed once a week and you're like, oh, this is great. Uh, versus two, three, four times in a week was just, I mean, it was way too much. So when you're doing your mandatory days, are you doing 24s at a time or is it, or is it breaking up into 12s or what's the deal? So they, they made a new rule. They made a new rule that we can't work more than 96 hours in a row. Cool. Well, that's nice of because them. Because, right? Yeah, I laughed a little <laughs> bit. I'm like, okay, that's, the damage was done two days ago, but all right, mm -hmm. let's go with 96. Um, but yeah, so we can't get more than 96 in a row forced. But yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, it makes, and, and you have what, four off now, or what are you doing? Uh, I'm off today. I go back tomorrow. So no, not even four. You get 24 off to go right back to it. Yeah, we do every other day four times, and then we get six days off in a row, and then we do every other day four times, and we get four in a row. Um, so we end up working, it's supposed to be 10 shifts a month mm -hmm. with a week's vacation every month, which is just amazing. But this last six day, I ended up working every day, not some of them on my own choice, uh, but some were not. Yeah, I mean, you you have this little side gig or side hustle, whatever you want to call it. That you never expect to have. Yeah. You're you're a public speaker, oh. and 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 that's a full time job in itself, correct? Oh. It is, and and uh, what an amazing gift it's turned into, and what a what a wild ride I've been on over the last eight years. My attack was eight years ago that landed me in the hospital and almost killed me, um, and then about a year later, I was asked to talk about it, and it. And then more and more people started asking and it got to the point I had to hire a manager to help me keep track of everything and deal with contracts and, and then, you know, lawyers and just crazy stuff that I never thought of But But now I travel all over the world and I told myself I will have made it as a speaker when I get to speak in Australia and I got invited this year. Awesome. Uh, I will be speaking in Australia in October. So I've officially made it as a public speaker in, in my own head. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks, man. I'm pretty excited. So let's, let's get down to the basics about you as a person. Where, okay. where'd you grow up, yes, sir? Uh, Santa Clarita by Magic Mountain, north of LA, about a, about an hour north of downtown city. I lived in LA County, um, went to school there, you know, did pretty well at high school. So I was looking at universities. I shopped around and UC San Diego really just flipped every switch for me. I was like, that is where I want to go to school. I went down to UC San Diego and my first year there, you know, the weather, I mean, LA is amazing, right? Southern California, but San Diego was just next level. And I, I knew my freshman year of college, I'm like, I am never leaving San Diego. Like this has got to be my home. Um, so I, I went to school, I got my degree and then I really didn't know what to do with my life. I was kind of lost, played uh, division one volleyball at UCSD. And we got a math degree. I was a bachelor's in mathematics, um, but I, you know, I didn't want to work in a cubicle. I didn't want to yeah. crunch a computer code in a basement. Um, you know, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be active. So been a couple of years I was in sales. I was, you know, outside sales, business to business. Um, 
I hated every minute of it. I vomited in the shower every morning because um, I had quotas and mm-hmm. right, like, like real world stuff, you know, like a real job with uh, real consequences. And I hated it. Um, it was stressful and, and I wasn't happy in life. So on the weekends, I would rock climb, skydive, scuba dive, like anything to get the rush, you know, to be outside and, and, you know, push myself to the limits. So I, extreme sports was my thing. Well, a buddy of mine who I played volleyball with a guy, Donnie, we, we were working off weekends at a dive shop, right? Cause it was equipment was cheaper and you could yeah. get discount on dive gear. So we worked at this dive shop on the weekends and we were advancing through the ranks of scuba diving. And so we were both dive masters, which is basically a professional scuba diver. And I would be in classes. I'd be the safety guy in classes, uh, spent a lot of time in the water. Well, my buddy Donnie comes flying through the door and he and I were both volleyball players. We're both graduated and then we're both miserable at our jobs and we're both doing this fun stuff together. And he says, Hey man, I heard about this job where we're dive masters and they have these boat races in mission bay where they, these boats, the ones that skim across the water and they're going a hundred miles an hour. He said, if we're dive masters and these things called EMTs, when the boat flips over and crashes, they will fly you out on a jet ski and you dive in to the water and you save the boat operator. And I go, Donnie, that is the job for us, right? Like that is what we have to do. I go, but what's an EMT? And he goes, I don't know, but I signed up. I'm in class on Monday and it was like Friday. And so I called my boss. I quit my job immediately. No two week notice. I just quit my job, enrolled in EMT class and started on, on a Monday and just introduced to this world of, of rescue and, and saving lives. And our instructor was a paramedic. And he was telling paramedic stories, right? IVs and cracking chests and, you know, needle fork costumes and, and Donnie and I immediately looked at each other. We're like, well, we have to do that, right? Like that has to be our thing. And so right away, as soon as we finished EMT school, we started doing all the prereqs to go to medic school. Um, and then one day I'm, I'm sitting outside a hospital. I just dropped a guy off and an ambulance pulled up from a neighboring county, a neighboring city. And this ambulance pulled up and a guy jumps out and he's wearing turnout bunker pants. And I'm like, hey, what are you? Like, who are you? And he goes, well, I'm a paramedic and I'm a firefighter. I go, oh my God, like that's a thing, you know, like you do paramedicine and firefighting. I'm like, I'm in, like, I got to do that. So started, you know, going to medical school, but I'm also taking fire science classes, uh, you know, working on that route. And then in the fire academy, they brought in the hazmat team. And these guys pulled up in this hazmat rig and they jump out, you know, and they're in their level A suits. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like, who are you? Like, what, what is that? And they go, we're paramedics, we're firefighters and we're hazmat. You know, we do a level A entries. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to do that. So my whole career is just finding the next coolest thing and then going and doing that, you know? So I joined the hazmat team that got me on our youth, our team, you know, we have 28 federal teams in the United States. San Diego has Task Force 8, California Task Force 8. As well as the hazmat guy I got on that team. And then they said, well, you have to go through all the rescue classes. And so I did all the rescue classes. And that made me eligible for our technical rescue team. And so 
eight years into my career, I'm on three special teams and I was able to bid for a spot on our heavy rescue, uh, which is downtown in the heart of San Diego, right by Petco park. Um, the engine, so there's a, there's two crews, an engine, engine four, and then there was rescue four, uh, which is now called USAR, but both crews and then you would rotate. So we do like two shifts on the pump and then two shifts on rescue. But eight years into my career, I'm on three special teams, but I'm now stationed downtown. Yeah. You know, big city fire department on the hazmat team, on the rescue team. And I'm telling you, man, my ego was, <laughs> it would not have fit in this room. No, of you course know, I not. Was, I was the most badass firefighter the world had ever seen. You know, I was <laughs> so full of myself. So, so what was family look like growing up? But nuclear family, what, what was it? Mom and dad married, divorced? What did you experience growing up as a kid? Yeah, I, I mean, if you're familiar with ACES scores at all, mm -hmm. you know, oh, my yeah. ACES score was, I was a zero. Okay. Um, my parents are happily married still. They, they uh, raised me and my sister, my little sister. Um, my dad is a preacher. He's now the fire chaplain for Mesa, Arizona. Okay. Um, and my mom was a high school teacher and art teacher. So, you know, I grew up in a very loving home and, um, life was good. I was the first firefighter in our family. Everybody else's teachers or preachers. Um, so I was the first to break that mold and become a firefighter. Yeah. So that, that I mean, an ACES score of zero is, 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 I'll be honest. It's, it's probably pretty rare in a fire department to be brutally honest. Agreed. I Agreed. think that we all bring in a pretty good score from on ACEs when you, when you join the fire department. I think that's one way of seeing if you're qualified to be a firefighter. If, yeah. I'm actually, uh, we can talk about this later, but I want to work with Lexapole and I'm in talks with them. Okay. They're not a massive, um, study on what ACEs scores are in the fire service. I think you're right. I think we are higher than the national average, mm -hmm. but I would like to find out for sure what our scores are. I think it'd be interesting, uh, study. Yeah. Along those lines, I've, I've kind of pondered myself about what's the prevalence of, of not only ADHD or ADD, but also kind of the spectrum in w with firefighters. Cause and it, with ADA, ADHD and ADD, does it, is it something that, that you you bring in with you or is it something that is exacerbated when you're in the service? Because we all know what this life is like when you're, when you're in the fire service and it, it does lend itself to kind of increasing some of these behaviors and, and it, then you start to delve into it and you see, oh, okay, well, some of these traumas can, and the, and the reaction to these traumas can mimic some of those ADHD behaviors or even the autis autistic behaviors. It's and so I guess that it's kind of difficult to can judge like you, you like 17 years in or 10 years in or 15 years in, you would have to follow a group of, across the spectrum of their career, no pun intended to, to see where, to see where they start and where they end up. And so it's just interesting. I I've always wondered about the prevalence of, of those kinds of what we call neurospicy or neurodivergent folks in the fire service or in first responder communities in general. It's a good question. And I think it should be something that's studied. Um, the flip side of that I'm a little worried, you know, if we do have higher than average ACE scores and we're bringing those into the job, I'm afraid cities will use that to say, you know, cause California's working really hard on making PTSD a work related, right? 
And so I'm afraid lawyers, if we, if I do study it and I do publish the findings that, that they would use that, go, oh, you have PTSD because you brought that in before you even started the job. So I'm a little worried that that gets used against us. That's an interesting take. I, I didn't even think about that because I think Virginia is so far away from qualifying PTSD as, as uh, work-related that uh, it's not even something that we're looking at on the radar. Yeah, so California has passed it. It is job-related. Um, those cancer. Mm-hmm. But yet we still have guys who file a claim and the city denies it. It's like, if it's presumptive, how do you deny it? Like, I'm confused. I still don't quite understand the inner workings of that. I'm, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to know if it's presumptive, how do insurance companies get away with we've had, the uh, We've had cancer presumption laws on the books in, in Virginia for years now. And mm-hmm. I'm probably going to misspeak and, and someone will yell at me. So I'll get a ton of mail about it. But as far yeah, as I know, know, we've had one successful case where they've said, yeah, you, you, this was, this was service related and here you go. Everything else has been fought, you know, and nothing is presumptive. Yep. And so it's, it's, right. it's the same as right. what you said. If, if this is a presumptive case, why are we not just presuming it? Right. It should be so simple. It's one page. Right. Fill it out, you're done. And we have, we've it's identified not. the specific cancers that we're, we're, we say are, are included right. in this bill. But even then, you right. don't get your coverage. Right. Right. That's so, frustrating. It's so very frustrating. Boots on the ground. Wondering what's going on behind the curtain. You mm-hmm. know? So, all right, you get through the academy and you you get all these. I mean, you 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 garner a lot of letters and and helmets and uniforms behind your name, eight yeah. years into your into your career, and you end up on on the heavy rescue. Which I've spoke speaking to Kevin Easley. I know what that rescue is like. That rescue runs. It does, and it and it and it does a lot of cool shit. To be honest with you, uh, it and, does. You, um, so how does, how does life progress in the fire service from that point on then for you? Yeah. And I'll be honest, you know, at that point in my career, I'm eight years in, I have a crew that I love. The engine is the busiest engine in the city. And it's the fourth busiest in the United States. Right. So it is, yeah, you're running, right. you are cooking. Yeah. Running. Um, but every day I come into work, I'm stoked to be there because we're on rescue. We get to do the coolest drills and then we get to mm-hmm. go to the coolest calls. Mm-hmm. And at that point in my career, I'm like, I, I could just set roots here. Like, I don't want to promote. I, I've made, right. And ironically enough, Johnny, my, my buddy that got me involved in all this, he's also on the same path as I am. He'd been into the same station on the same division. So we're both fire medics, we're college buddies, and we're now at the same firehouse on the same shift. I mean, we're just the happiest people alive right i was gonna say does life get better at that point it right i'm with my best friend from college we're at the same firehouse and this is the crew you know we have our own little christmas party we all go to padres games together our families come by and eat at the firehouse on a regular basis Mm -hmm. not just right so it's just always fun and and people are envious right The, the crew is a tight tight group of good people we all do our jobs. We're all professional. Um, we love each other. Like I, I'm ready to just retire. Right. I'm like, I'm going to do this for the next 20 years, retire out of here. I'm good. Right. I've, I've reached the pinnacle of what it is to be a firefighter. I'm done. Like I'm, I'm good. And a lot of us 
because we're all specialists in other areas, we teach the classes where we teach at the academy, mm -hmm. you know, we we're we're drilling with other agencies around us. Um, and we just have a good reputation. Like life is good, man. It was, oh, I do miss that. That was good. So all of that changed, uh, on June 24th, 2015. So if you don't mind, I can share my screen. No, go for walking through the call. That yeah. And we'll try to do a play by play, a radio announcement for, there you go. Oh, I like it. How about that? I like it. Entire screen. Here we go. Whoa, that's cool looking. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's cool looking. All right. So let me walk you through this. Are you seeing me so far? Yeah. Can you see this? I can. Yep. You see it? Okay. So, um, June 24th. Yeah. All right. So the call, um, and I, I'm on engine four. Donnie is on the rescue that day. So it's my turn to be in the barrel, right? We, we get crushed. Uh, we're averaging 25 to 30 calls a shift on changing four. Yeah. So this is a Wednesday. It's 4 PM and showing you the picture so we can talk to the people who are listening. But there's a, a guy in a white t-shirt. He's sitting on a park bench at the mm -hmm. trolley stop downtown. So this is maybe three or four blocks from Qualcomm or I'm sorry, from Petco stadium. So that's in the heart of everything. It's in the heart of everything. This is, this is, uh, 12th and market. So this is right in the heart of downtown. This is about four blocks from our station. Cause we're right next to Petco park. Okay. So the gentleman in the white t-shirt, he is drunk. Uh, he's homeless mm -hmm. and he is, um, he's too drunk. He's, he's fallen all over himself. The gentleman you see with the badges, you know, they look like cops. They are trolley security dog. Ah, okay. So yeah, I was going to ask if they were cops. They're de most definitely not cops. Eh? They're not. An, and one of the mistakes, I made a lot of mistakes, but one of the mistakes is we called these guys trolley cops. And I think subconsciously I gave them a lot of credit for everything they wear in their belt, right? They've got the utility belt. They've got guns, mm -hmm. uh, pepper spray, batons, handcuffs, you know, they got everything they need. What I didn't know until much later, you know, until the trial and I got to meet these guys, but, um, they don't have any training. Yeah. So they'd, they're essentially mall security guards. Right. And I didn't know that the gentleman you see in the black t-shirt, this is the guy that tries to kill me. Okay. So he's the one kneeling in front of the gentleman in the white t-shirt. Correct. And so what happened is the guy, in the white shirt, our patient is falling all over himself and the guy in the black t-shirt also homeless doesn't know the guy and the trolley guys all see this guy like falling all over himself. Like he, he's almost fallen onto the tracks a couple of times, right? Like he is hammered. And so everybody descends on him at the same time. And the problem with that is that everybody wants to help, but nobody's working together. Right. And, and so the issue is the guy in white t-shirt is belligerent. He's argumentative and he's not cooperating. And then the security guards aren't working well with the bystander and they're arguing with him, trying to get him out of the way so they can do an assessment. So they knew he and, was, and so, they knew he was another of the homeless guys in, in the area. 
Correct. Did they, Correct. they had so experience like, hey, with him? Um, no, but I found out later, San Diego PD, and we have a Harbor Police Department because of the water. Mm-hmm. They had had interactions with okay. the bystander, and they knew he was bad news, right? Like, th- this dude was, was a ticking time bomb, really. So the problem is this, the call is progressing. They're trying to do assessments. Nobody's working together and the call is escalating. People are getting really pissed off at each other. Mm -hmm. So everybody's getting pissed off at the drunk guy. Trolley guys are getting pissed off at the bystander. Bystanders getting pissed off that, you know, nobody wants him there. Right. And it's, it's coming to a boiling point where, where blood is starting to boil and it's almost about to come to a fist fight. And this is all happening before we arrive. So we don't know that. And we, um, so we're rolling up to this call and, and we don't realize that it's a volcano, right? Yeah. Ready we have no idea. Right. Now I have this picture because, um, the city, you know, this is a really wide curve where pedestrians and trolley riders are intermixing. Mm-hmm. So the city put up this three foot railing to separate the curb Mm -hmm. so that your trolley riders and your pedestrians, you know, can, can move smoothly without really running into each other. And I show this picture because the fight starts on the trolley side Mm -hmm. and it spills over this railing and I jump over the railing to break up a fight. Okay. Well, the fight comes my way. And all of a sudden, uh, the bystander is like ready to come at me. And I realize I'm in a bad spot and I try to back up and I run into that railing and it traps me. Yeah. And so I think I'm the only firefighter in history to get trapped outside, which is <laughs> well, really it's, embarrassing. It's an odd achievement, but we'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take, I'll take it. So entry four, we're rolling up now. Like you guys, we usually park right in front of our call, mm-hmm. all of our gears there, et cetera, right? But the, the trolley tracks exactly take up the whole street. So we have to park a block away. Now, the thing about this picture is you see our engine rolling in, my window's down. And from a block away, I can see my patient yelling and I see him standing. And even though I can see he's wobbly on his feet, I did his airway, breathing, and circulation from my seat in the rig. Right. right? So complacency is kind of another mm-hmm. trap I fell into on this. I'm rolling. This is our 10th call of the day and our third time at this trolley stop on this day. Yeah. So I've already been here twice. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not my third time. I'm, I'm, I'm complacent. I've run this call so many times that. I'm doing my ABCs from, from the cab. Right. So, uh, one of the security guards walked up and as I'm grabbing my gear, he gives me a turnover and he goes, Hey, we got a drunk guy, but he does not give us a turnover of, and by the way, we've been dealing with a bystander Mm -hmm. and this thing's about to come to blows. Like, we're really glad you're here, but we don't get any of that. Yeah, you have no so, idea what that what the additional gentleman is doing. You don't even know he's part of the the incident. Exactly. So we grab our gear, we walk the full block 
you know, this massive city block to get to our patient. And we, we arrived, there are five security guards with guns and four professional firefighters. There's mm-hmm. nine of us, mm-hmm. right? And we do what everyone does. We make our little bubble. Mm-hmm. And my partner jumps in and starts doing an assessment on the drunk guy. I actually got a turnover from the bystander. <laughs> so the bystander, I affectionately call him Stabby. Mm. Um, his, his full name is Stabby Stabberton and he's the mayor of Stabberville. <laughs> so Stabby gives, Stabby gives me a turnover and I, I mean, we've all done this, right? I've, I placate him. I listen. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm very polite. I go, Hey, okay, great. And, and, you know, he gives me a bunch of information I don't need. Mm-hmm. It's not relevant. It's, it's useless information, but I play the game and I, I listen for about 30 seconds and I go, Hey man, that, thank you. Like that's wow. That was very helpful. I appreciate everything you're telling me. I'll take over from here. And he says, okay. He grabs his backpack and he walks away and he, he walks out of the sea. He walked behind me. Right. And so I'm, I now turn all my attention to my paper. Of right? course. It's like, okay, here we go. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to do my assessment, take his vitals, you know, get on the radio, talk to the hospital, like package this guy up. So when the ambulance shows, this is going to be the easiest hmm. transport for them. Right. Well, what I don't see, and in this picture, you can, you can see it. I'm starting my assessment. Well, over my shoulder behind me, Stabby didn't leave the scene. He walked around and was standing behind me and he was, he, he kind of re-engaged with the trolley security guards mm-hmm. and, you know, they were already argumentative and pissed off at each other. Well, he kind of re-engaged that and they re-engaged. And so now the call that was a volcano is back to a boiling point, mm-hmm. right? I hear that. I hear that going on behind me, but it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, I, I got a job to do. I trust my crew behind me. I got five security guards. I hear arguing, but I don't let that faze me at all. And then what I also don't see because it happened behind me, he ended up getting in my captain's face and trying to pick a fight with my captain. Your captain is the one in the turnout gear. Yeah. He's in the turnout gear. He's got an iPad, Mm -hmm. right? And he's trying to track vitals and, and get personal information. Yep. And then we can send that to the ambulance yep. as they arrive. And now they've got everything they need, right? It's a pretty slick system. So our captain's trying to do that, but daddy is getting in his face and arguing with him and, and calling him names. And my captain's finally had enough. And he goes, Hey man, I need you to back up. And he puts his hand on the guy's chest mm-hmm. and he pushes him back and the guy trips over a park bench. Gotcha. Well, that is the catalyst, Mm -hmm. right? That's the tipping point, but we've only been on scene for 90 seconds. So we have no idea where we're at in this call, right? Like, and so my captain pushes the guy down, the guy jumps up and attacks a security guard. And you got like, from my captain's point of view, he pushes the guy down. The guy hops up and punches somebody else, 
right? My, my captain's confused. Like, of course what? he is. Yeah. Right. He's like, what is going on? When I hear fist flying, when I hear contact, that finally breaks my concentration and I turn and I, I'm now trying to get my bearings, right? I'm, I'm trying to, okay, well, what is happening? Like what's going on? And I see this guy beating up a security guard. So I run over to get in the fight. Honestly, my thought was we're going to grab this guy and put him on the ground and put him in handcuffs. But as I get there, they hockey check him over that railing. I was telling you about, right? Right. They, they pushed him on the other side of that railing. They, they kind of dump him on his ass on the other side of the railing. And for me, I go, oh, okay. I mean, it looked like he got the wind knocked out of him. It looks like they've handled the fight, mm -hmm. right? Like it's over, but it's not. He rolled on his feet and of the nine of us, right? Five security guards, four firefighters. There's one security guard on the other side of the railing. Mm. He is all by himself. Yeah. He's, yeah. On, he's on the island. He's about to get jacked up. It, yes. Yes. So with that split second, Daddy rolls onto his feet and then he kind of locks eyes with that one poor guy who's by himself and he just starts throttling the guy, right? I mean, he just beating the shit out of him. And I, I go, oh no, I got to save the security guard. I'm in rescue mode. I'm a, right? We're rescuers. We're not mm -hmm. fighters. We don't, you know what I mean? We're not, I don't have anything on my tool belt for pain, you know, well, compliance. I have no pepper spray. I have nothing. But my mindset is I got to rescue the guy. So I jump over the railing and I dive between these two guys and I wedge my body between them. And I put my hand on both their chests and I shove them apart as far as I can. And the mistake I made, right? There's a lot of mistakes, complacency, um, boredom, um, Figure the security guards have more training than they do. Mm -hmm. But I've now, by separating this guy, given him a chance to kind of regroup, rearm, and re-engage, right? And, so I've, and focus on you. Yes, yes. So what was nine on one, right? Then turns into one on one. So now this is video. You see my hands. I'm trying to talk this guy and go, yep. Hey, what is going on? If you watch his right hand as he is moving in my direction, he is reaching for a knife. The security guards are pepper spraying he's, him from about. Yeah. He's got it on his right away. hip or something, correct? He does. Yep. But the security guards are pepper spraying mm -hmm. from too far away. And now you can see oh. it's just me and him. And now I'm on the island. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I. I know immediately like this guy means business. And so I just try to back up. And that is a knife going into my belly. Mm. So he hit you right on the flank, from, right? Left flank, right on the flank. Yep. Um, missed my kidney. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. But this shot right above my belt, um, Severed a nerve in my back. I have no feeling in my lower back. Um, but honestly, I tell people you have to lose feeling anywhere in your body. That is the perfect spot because it doesn't affect my life in any way. You know, 
Um, so he hits me here and then he pulls the knife out and gets me right behind my shoulder, right behind my left arm in my chest. Um, and this one broke a rib and punctured my lung. So mm. this is a kill shot, right? Yeah. Uh, he, so I'll, I'll just show you. So then he pulls the knife out and he goes for my head. And here's what I've learned. And, and it, it was almost, uh, two years after this event, I was giving this talk to the California department of corrections. And I gave my talk to a bunch of prison guards. Now, when I show the video to firefighters, EMTs, nurses, doctors, right? When you see the knife go into my body, everybody always goes, Ooh, you know, like, oh, like it's a pretty cool reaction. But the department of corrections guys didn't react and they kind of, I could just tell, like they looked at the, it differently. And I noticed, but I didn't say anything. You know, I kept going with my talk. Well, when the talk was over, the, the corrections officers came up to me and they said, Hey man, we're going to show you a video. And I said, okay, what do you got? And they showed me a video of a prison yard. And it was from like a tower looking down in the yard. Mm -hmm. And there are prisoners who are lifting weights and some are jogging and some are playing handball, but over in the corner near like a pull-up bar, there's three or four. Uh, prisoners and they have like sticks in their hand, like pencils mm -hmm. and they're hitting the pull-up bar, the vertical pull-up bar, and they're hitting it three times as fast as they can. Yeah. And I said, well, what are they doing? And they said, well, they're training to stab us mm -hmm. and they stab us just above the belt below our, our vest because they wear stab vests. Mm -hmm. They stab just above the belt. They stab in our armpit where there is no vest and in the head. Mm. And they said, your guy, that's a prison, that's a prison trained knife fighter. And that guy is stabbing you as if you were wearing a vest. And that's true. He was a felon. This guy was a, a previous felon who'd spent time, hard time in prison. And so that just sent chills up my spine. I was like, holy shit. Like, yeah, I went up against a prison trained knife fighter and he stabbed me as if I was wearing a vest. Like how crazy is that? Mm. Now, the reason I got so lucky is, you know, I didn't see the knife. He kept it hidden and he came up chest to chest with me and then swung and hit me from behind. And I remember as we're fighting, I'm like, man, you fight like a weirdo. Like this is not, I've never gone toe to toe with somebody and tried to punch them in the back of the head right from the front. Do you know what I mean? I was like, yeah. what are you doing? And so I never saw the knife, but when he stuck it in my chest, when he pulled, I didn't feel anything, but when he pulled the knife out, all the air in my lung went out sideways. Yeah. It knocked the wind out of me and I doubled over. Mm -hmm. And when I doubled over, he tried to stick me in the head and he missed. And so it was just pure luck, you know, by the grace of God that he did not me in the side of the head because i'd be dead right that would that yeah would have been a, absent that move dumb. of doubling over you'd have a knife in your skull in my skull exactly so um that was my that was my fight right and i didn't show you the, the fight in real speed 
the whole thing less than three seconds. Jeez. So my, my partner, Alex, he didn't see the knife either, but he saw the guy punching me. And in the fire service, we have two moves. We talk or we tackle. Mm-hmm. I tried talking. Yeah. Alex went for the tackle. So Alex dove on top of the guy, you know, just landed on top of him, you know, laid on top of him. But the guy still had the knife in his hand. Yeah. So he stuck Alex and stabbed Alex three times, uh, all in the upper back. Well, he got me and Alex combined less than three seconds. So he stabbed two guys a total of five times in less than three seconds. Mm. So it was lightning fast. Yeah. And you're, you're coming from a standpoint where you're not, you're not trained to deal with that. So yeah, right. I mean, other than being injured, you're just, you're just absolutely stunned. Yes. Just, just, yeah. The fight was over before I even knew it had started. Right. They had already dogpiled him and got the knife out of his hand by the time I started realizing the damage. So I started feeling warm liquid running down my back and then suddenly I couldn't take a full breath of air. Right. And I was like, yeah. sorry, my brain, I'm trying to do the math of like weird way. He punched me warm liquid, can't breathe. Mm-hmm. And then I felt the I felt a knife go through my hair as he glanced off the top of my head. And so then I was like, oh shit, that, that was a knife in his head. Like, oh my right. God, I've been stabbed. And by that, you know, it's, it's over. You know, there was, everybody already had him, you know, pinned down and put him in handcuffs. And, and then I'm like, oh my God, like I'm in trouble. Right? Yeah. I'm in real trouble. Uh, yeah. Now I'm the patient. Yeah. Yeah. So we called for a Hail Mary, you know, we, our code for trouble is cover now. Okay. And when you get on the radio and you'll cover now, that is, you know, Mayday. Like mm-hmm. we use Mayday on fires, we use cover now on medical aids. So cover now was our, was the call. And it was like two firefighters have been stabbed, right? Like send the cavalry, like send everybody. And so that happened, you know, the, our department descended on us. Um, cops came out of every corner. I mean, it was, it was amazing, right? Mm-hmm. The response. San Diego Fire and San Diego P have a great relationship and I hope never to, to ruin that. You know, we, we really take care of each other and what we call cover now, man. I mean, they, they came in full force. Um, so that was, that was a bad day. I got rushed to the hospital and I had a hemo pneumothorax. So I had air and blood in my chest cavity. It was collapsing my lung. They had to do a chest tube, um, to, to pull all the air and blood out of my cavity to let my lung expand. Um, brother, the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. Like, holy shit, that was rough. They had to do while I was awake, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they give you a little bit of local anesthetic, but you know, that tube is rubbing across the surface of your lungs. Like it was just, whew, it was rough. Um, but yeah, they at got least all the stab one came out. quick and, and, and unknowingly basically. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. chest tube, you know it and you feel every bit of it. And it's coming and you know, it's coming and, and yeah, I had time to dwell on it, but that was rough. But, uh, the end of the chest tube 
and reinflated my lung. And then, you know, pain meds kicked in and I was out cold, uh, you know, woke up in the recovery room. Um, Alex, you know, got rushed to the hospital as well. His wound, uh, not as life threatening, but to me way more painful because the last dab, uh, he's, he's dabbing kind of in the trap mm. from the back, but then he opened him up, you know, he rooted the knife around mm -hmm. to create a big cavity. And so he had to flush it and wash it out and pack the wound every day for weeks Ugh. until the wound closed from the inside out. So I think Alex got it way worse than I did. But yeah. I mean, both, anyway. let's be honest, both are miserable. I don't, none of us want yeah. either of those things to happen. To <laughs> agree. Agree. How long's your recovery? Well, that's the trend, right? Um, they kept the tube. I was in the hospital for three days. Mm -hmm. They pulled the tube. They said, all right, look, physically, we can't do anything about the severed nerve in your back, but that won't prevent you from going back to work. Go home for about three weeks. Let your lung heal. Um, we'll bring you back in about three weeks. We'll pull the stitches. We'll do a pulmonary function test. And, you know, physically you're good. Like you can go back to work. And at the time, you know, I'm laying in the hospital bed. I'm like, I love this plan. Like, this is awesome. Missing three weeks of work. Like, hell yeah. Like I'm in, you know, this is great. Way less time than I thought. Like, all right, you know, good. But I'm taking a bunch of pain meds and I'm, I'm sleeping every night with opiates, you know, Percocet, Oxy, like. And, and so about 10 days goes by, I'm at home, I'm recovering at home. You know, I'm getting hundreds of emails and texts. Hey man, hope you're good. You know that I'm glad you're okay. I like, can't wait to see you back at work. And I'm like, yep, looking forward to it. See you in a couple of weeks. Well, after about 10 days, opiates, right? I mean, we know how addictive those are. And yeah. in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm a week and a half in. In another two and a half weeks, we're supposed to go back to work. I got to get off these opiates. You know, this is not going to fly. So I quit the opiates. I threw them in the trash. I flucked them because I just, I didn't want to get addicted. And my plan is I'll take Tylenol. The pain gets to be too much. Well, what I didn't know is the opiates were suppressing my subconscious. Mm. Without those opiates, that first night, I had my first nightmare and stack. I'm telling you, man, I, I, we need a new name for these. This was the most intense thing I have ever experienced. That first night I dream I'm back at the trolley stop, right? I'm, I'm squared off with stabby. I'm my back is against the railing. My hands are up, right? Like we are going to fight again, but I can see him as clearly as I can see you. I can smell urine on the street. That's been, the trolley goes by behind me, but the wind from the trolley kind of rocks me off balance. Like it is, it is detailed. I can feel the sun on the back of my neck, right? Well, he comes at me and he stabs me in the back, but this time I captured his hand and I kept it in my back so he couldn't get me in the chest and I grabbed him with my other hand. I grabbed him by his ear and then I swept his legs 
and I threw them on the ground and I climbed on top of them and I start cracking his head in the pavement. Mm. And I made the decision. I didn't want to kill him, but I wanted to take the fight out of him because mm. I didn't want to stab me again. So I cracked him a couple of times on the pavement, like loud cracks and it worked. He, he lets go of the knife. It's still in my back. I didn't feel it in my back, but he lets go and he, he kind of lays out and, and I'm like, all right, good. It's my turn now. And I decided the best way I'm going to hurt him is I'm going to bite off his face. And so while I'm holding both ears, I think my teeth into his orbit and I, I bite as deep and as hard as I can in my, the bottom of my teeth catch on the underside of his skull. Yeah. And I remember in my dream, I'm like, I'm not strong enough to bite through skull. Mm -hmm. So I back up a little bit until I feel just his eyebrow and I can feel his eyebrow tickling my tongue. And when I know I've got them just meat, I bite through and blood squirts in my mouth and I can taste the blood and then I rip off piece of his face and I spit it out mm. and he's screaming, but it's not enough. Right? I didn't cause him enough pain. And so I put my thumbs on his eyeballs and I just shove them into his eye sockets and I, I gouge out his eyes and his eyeballs rupture in my hands and I can feel my thumb going through brain matter. Right. And he's really screaming. And then I'm screaming back at him. I'm, I'm taunting him, but that wakes me up and I sit straight up in bed and I'm, my thumbs are in his eyesight, right? Like I'm sitting up, like I'm trying to rip off his face. I can taste blood in my mouth. I am soaked in sweat. Mm -hmm. My eyes are dilated. My blood pressure's, you know, 150, 180, like just pounded, right? And my heart rate is 150 and I'm just, and I'm screaming. I wake up screaming and I'm like, and, and soaked in sweat. I could dilate it. I taste blood in my mouth. Like I've just murdered this guy. Right. I can't go back to sleep after that, right? You don't just turn over and lay back no. down. My bed is a swimming pool from sweat. My poor wife is laying next to me and, and she's pretending to be asleep. You know, she's like, Jesus. So I go downstairs, I sit in the dark, I drink water. I just try to bring my vitals within normal limits, right? Just try to reset. Well, that's, that's my night. And then I watch the sun come up. I watch TV all day. I wait for the sun to go down. And I, I remember thinking that first night, this is normal. I should have been expecting this. I should have been ready for this. But you know, gnarly event, gnarly nightmare, like, duh, that was dumb. Well, the second night I go, okay, take two, you know, and now I'm pretty damn tired, but I'm like, let's take two. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Second night, same nightmare, gouge his eyes out, rip his face off, wake up screaming, tasting blood in my mouth, send the dark, awake for the rest of the night, mm -hmm. drinking water, trying to bring my vitals within normal limits. And then the third night. And the fourth night and the fifth night, six, seven, right? Like, and then at some point, and I, I'm delirious at this point, I lose track, but I can't go to sleep at all because I know mm -hmm. that as soon as I close my eyes, I'm going to wake up screaming 
you know, fighting this guy in my sleep. And very quickly, right? The, the physical is healing and I'm supposed to be going to get ditches out and go back to work soon. But now I'm realizing like, oh, oh dude, I'm in trouble, right? Like, this is not good. Like, uh oh, like, uh, I don't know what to do. And I was kind of lost, to be honest. I, I, my department didn't have in 2015, we had nothing mm-hmm. in place for mental health. We had no plan. We didn't have a peer support team. We didn't have any, right? Like our health and safety was a hundred percent on physical injuries and cancer. So I, I'm kind of lost and I'm scared and I don't know what to do. Well, I showed you that video in slow motion then because the news went to the courthouse and they said, Hey, you know, we'd like access to the videos. And the judge said, yeah, okay. And he released the body cam footage to the media. Well, the media, well, the, the event down to slow motion because the fight happens too fast. You know, two guys get stabbed five times in less than three seconds. When you see the video in real speed, you can't see anything. It's just over mm-hmm. so quick. So they slowed down and they played it on the news. Well, the thing I'm telling you, man, when you go through an event like that, I was replaying that fight in slow motion anyway. And then I didn't know the security guards were wearing body cams. And I didn't know the guy was standing right behind me, practically from my point of view. Yeah. And so the, there's, there's my image in my head played on TV. Like it was so surreal to see that, you know, I go like, holy shit, that is amazing. Like, whoa. But of course my wife sees the knife go through my hair and she just starts bawling. Of course. Um, well, I, I told you I'd gotten dozens, hundreds of emails and calls. That video got released and now people are driving to my house and they're knocking on the door and they're going, dude, are you okay? Yeah. And I realized pretty quick, they're not asking if I'm physically okay. Yeah. They're asking if I'm mentally okay. And stack that video, I felt like gave me this get out of jail free card, this excuse to go get mental health help. And my reputation would stay intact Hmm. because we have the same stigma on the West coast that you have on the East coast, right? If you get mental health help, you're weak or you can't be trusted. Everybody walked on eggshells around you. They don't know what to, you know what I mean? They're like, oh, I don't know. All of that bullshit. I I had the same. I'm like, dude, if I, you know, if I end up in a therapist's office, I am weak-minded, I'm lame, like, right. But now I'm like, oh dude, I can go get help. And no one will make fun of me, right? This is a, this is a pass. Yeah. Because if anybody thinks less of me, I just show them the video and they go, okay. Exactly. Yeah. You do. I I've earned the spot, right? I got street cred now. Yeah. I got street cred. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm gonna go get help. Well, I didn't know where to go. And my department didn't have anything in place. Mm-hmm. So I called workers comp and I said, Hey, this is a workers comp injury. I need mental health help. And the city was very accommodating and they sent me to a guy who specialized in car accident victims. Oh, so that's cool. Yeah. 
I, I didn't know any better. I figured, Hey man, I, I car accident victims do like, this is great. Like, let's do this. And right away, right. I can, like the guy doesn't know what to do with me at all. I was going to say he's, he's as unprepared as you are. Correct. So my first ever therapist, I go and I sit down with this guy and I'm telling him about the nightmares. And he says, well, if you're having trouble sleeping, man, lay off the caffeine. <laughs> you know, at some point, like I'm looking on his wall at all of his, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, are you really a bona fide psychologist? Like, mm -hmm. are you kidding me? You went to school for this? Like, this is your advice. <laughs> so I, it, it got worse before it could get better. Um, I'll be honest at some point it's like 2 AM. I'm trying to get mental health help. I'm getting worse. The guy isn't helping me. I haven't slept in weeks. Yeah. And I remember sitting alone in the dark on my staircase and in my head, I said, okay, it's 2 AM. You just got to get to 201. And I did, I got to 201, watched the clock click. And then I just had this unbelievable dread. I go, oh my God, I have to get to 202. Mm. Yeah. Forget three o'clock. For the first, right, right. And for the first time in my life stack, I understood suicide. Mm -hmm. Because the way I describe it, every one of us, when we are fully functioning and healthy, no matter how bad things are right now, you can see light at the end of the tunnel, right? There is hope. Yeah. I'm, I'm sick right now and I have a cough, but by this Saturday, it'll be gone. And then I can go ice skating with my wife or right. Like I'm stuck at work. I've been mando to get, but I got a camping trip right in, in six days, right? I can see further than the end of my nose. Right. But when you're in that darkness and you are in it, I can't see past one minute into the future. I can't see past the end of my nose and, and I'm just in this world of hurt. And I remember thinking to myself, if I don't figure this out, I own a gun. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed I get some sleep, right? That's, that will solve my sleep issue. Mm -hmm. But then I remember sitting there in the dark going, okay, hold on. This guy tries to kill me, misses, and I kill myself like yeah. that, that's dumb. I was, and then I, I remember also thinking, like most firefighters, I consider myself mentally tougher than most. Mm -hmm. I almost get murdered. And within about a month, I'm suicidal. Like, why? I, I am clearly not as mentally tough as I thought because I spiraled so quick. Mm -hmm. Right. And that kind of made me laugh as well. I'm like, wow, buddy, like. Maybe you're not the badass you thought you were like you hit bottom pretty damn fast, you know, like the wheels came off this bus pretty quick. And I, I was sitting in the dark, just kind of laughing at myself. Like, how did I get here? You know, like what, what the hell? So I've actually reached out to a buddy of mine. He was a firefighter, but he was a former cop. He was involved in an officer involved shooting. He killed a guy. It was deemed a clean shoot. He was cleared to go back to work, but it ended his career. He didn't want to do it anymore. And so he left the police department and joined the fire department. And I remember thinking, 
this is the guy that can help me. Right. So you, you want to understand the power of peer support, knowing there's a guy in my job that has been through what I've been through was huge. And so I threw him a lifeline. I, I drove, I didn't even call him. I drove to the firehouse that he was working and I was pretty desperate. You know, I was in tears and I was like, dude, you gotta help me. Like you, you won your fight, but it ended your career, right? Like I lost my fight. Like what is happening to me? And I don't know what to do. And to his credit, he said, Hey man, you need to go see the therapist that I worked with. He specializes in police mm -hmm. and he pulled out a tattered business card and he handed me a business card. And so I was introduced to a company called Focus Psychological Services. They're a third party vendor. They have an exclusive contract with the city of San Diego. They only work with PD. There are 12 therapists on hand. The police can go unlimited visits as many times as they want to go. Even after they retire, they can mm -hmm. still go for free. Any family member of the police officer that lives in the home. And if there's children involved, even if they're divorced, the children can go for free. It's an amazing program. Yeah. Sounds like it. Well, I called them and I talked to this doctor and I said, look, man, I need your help, but I'm with the fire department. We don't have a contract with you. My insurance won't cover you. You know, workers comp won't cover this. And I said, right now I'm on injury leave. I'm not getting any overtime on my paycheck. I can't afford you. Right. But if you will help me just keep track of the hours. When I get back to work, I promise I will pay. I will pay back in full, right? Like I will write it, but just please help me now. You know, the kindly pay you Tuesday per hamburger today. Kind right. of thing. Like hook me up, you know, please, please, please. And the guy was so generous. A guy named Dr. Mark Foreman. And he said, buddy, I don't care about money. Who gives a crap about hours? Just get in here. Um, and so I went down and I'd met with a, a, a psychologist. Well, Dr. Mark Foreman was former San Diego PD. So he was a cop and I mean, spoke our language, right? Like took the humor, like all the same things fire has PD has. Mm -hmm. And so he's talking to me on my level. You know, he, he was good about not talking over my head. Um, and we immediately started treatment and I, you know, I credit three people with saving my life. My partner, Alex hadn't jumped in and tackled that guy. That guy would have finished the job. I, I would be dead for sure. There's no doubt. My, my buddy, uh, peer supporter, the former cop, you know, he was my peer supporter and, and he, I threw a lifeline, he caught it to his credit. He didn't try to fix me. He just realized immediately I needed advanced level care and he sent me to someone that he had been to, right? So someone he recommended, which is, God, that is, that makes a lot of difference, right? When I go, Hey man, go see this guy. He helped me, right? That is, that is the highest praise you can receive. And then I credit Mark Foreman, you know, who agreed to see me for free and, and basically pieced me back together. Uh, that made 
all the difference in the world. And, and so those three men I, I credit with saying, yeah, it's each of those gentlemen did a, did a trio <laughs> on you without even doing a triage on you. They just saw what you Correct. needed really. Correct. And, yeah. and they and took I, action. Correct. No question which is so rare. So rare. And I, uh, usually when I, I talk about stabbing, watch the video, it's not an issue. But when I start talking about the people who saved my life, you know, who went out of their way and went above and beyond, holy crap, man, I well up with tears so quick. And I'm just, I'm impressed right now. I'm not crying because it <laughs> usually hit me right in the feels. I can imagine, um, and, and I can understand why. Yeah, so I am truly grateful to those guys. They saved my life. So what kind of work and how long roughly did it take to get past those, those nightmares, to get past the, that time period where you were seeing this every night? Yeah, well, so this doctor, you know, he pulls me in, um, looking into my signs and symptoms, we watched the video together, right? Like he, he has everything he needs. He mm -hmm. knows what's going on. Well, we started a treatment called EMDR mm -hmm. that very first day. Honestly, the reason I share my story, the reason I'm willing to travel all over the world to introduce firefighters to EMDR and stack it, it blows my mind, man. I will be in a room of 20 people from one department, bring up EMDR. And there's always at least one guy in the room that's done it, loves it. It's helped him. Mm -hmm. Someone else in that room has never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And it, it drives me nuts, man, because honestly, if, if someone from your department falls through a roof, there's an investigation, you guys write up a report, I get to read it. Like you, you share that information so we can learn from each other. Mm -hmm. But to this day, and it's been, been eight years and I've traveled, I've, I've spoken in multiple countries and almost, I think now 38 states. And, and I've spoken to hundreds of people. I've spoken to five people, but always one person in the room has heard of MDR and loves it. Someone else has never heard of it. And that pisses me off. Quite frankly, we're not talking about mental health and we're not sharing strategies and tactics. Mm -hmm. And there is this treatment that absolutely brought me back from the brink of suicide quickly. Hey guys, quick break right here, just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone, you know, help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. EMDR fixed me so bad that I was just, I was like, I have to scream this from the mountaintops, right? Like people need to know that there is a therapy out there that is ridiculously helpful. Um, and clearly stack, you've heard of it. Yeah, actually my own therapist that we, I, I started going to a year and a half, two years ago, and she, um, she's part of our, what we call our resilience center in Prince William and, and they're, they're paved through the, through the county and through the fire department, but they're not 
they're not, you don't, they don't report to anybody in the fire department. <clears throat> she's, That's she's, awesome. she specializes as well in EMDR and, and we did a session and then we kind of got carried, well, not carried away. We kind of got, yeah, carried uh -huh. towards a different topic. Cause at the time I was dealing with one thing and then, then it was kind of focused on, on my mom's uh, illness and her, and her potential death. And so we kind of got away from EMDR, but I, I understand the basics of it. And I wish more people did understand it and more people were exposed to it as a treatment. Yes. Yes. Cause it, uh, it was amazing. And, and obviously after this event and my struggle with mental health and then doing EMDR and making a full recovery, I I've become so passionate about mental health. And then of course I listening to podcasts, I'm reading books, I'm getting to talk to people like yourself, you know, from all over who were also passionate about it. And I've, you know, devoted the rest of the, most of my career since my injury to trying to learn as much as I can about mental health. And it's, it's my jam, you know, I love it. Um, so I'll learn about EMDR and how it works and I've become obsessed with sleep mm -hmm. uh, and the quality of sleep. So I'm actually giving a lecture every day in January to my department for our paramedic CE. Mm -hmm. And they've given me 90 minutes to share what I've learned about sleep. And so I'm going to bring up EMDR and, and that sort of thing. So I, I, but I love this stuff and the EMDR is so fascinating to me. The brain is so fascinating. Well, and um, before we go any further, let's, let's break it down. So I, if yeah. they've listened to my show for any amount of time, they've heard me mention EMDR and what it means, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention it just in case we have listeners who aren't familiar. Eye movement, uh, desensitization, and reprocessing, correct? Yes. And so basically, the analogy that I've used is it's kind of like that card catalog. Every every memory is kind of categorized as it comes into the brain. And yes. memories like your fight and you're getting stabbed kind of get, if, if that memory gets interrupted in some way, it gets, it gets filed away improperly. And EMDR is kind of a way of, of bringing that memory out kind of distracting the brain and going, uh, we're going to take this, this card and it's going to go here and we'll shove that, we'll close that drawer and then they'll come back and you focus and it's kind of recatalog correctly. Okay. I like it. Yes. And that's, that's, so that's a very rudimentary, yes, very yes. rudimentary description from my point of view. So here's how I'd like to describe it and see if this analogy works too, because I'm going to use it in, in January when I give the C. Do you know the, uh, I love that dick that you have for a dog and you put, it looks like a spaghetti ladle, but mm -hmm. the tennis ball yeah. fits in it. And you, and fling you it. can fling it, man. Yeah. That ball just goes for a hundred miles and you don't throw your shoulder out. Yeah. So it saves your shoulder for us old guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your, your memories are, are facts and emotions. And so you, you sometimes have memories that an emotion is attached like a ball in that tennis ball thrower, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when you sleep at night, you go through three different phases, deep mm -hmm. sleep, light sleep, and REM sleep. And REM, that's for rapid eye movement. That's dreaming. Mm -hmm. Well, they've, and it's fascinating what they've discovered and learned about sleep in the last 20 years, but it is REM sleep where your body, while you're dreaming, your brain goes through and it looks for all of the tennis balls attached mm -hmm. and goes, okay, here's a memory. There's an emotion. Let's separate them. And, and now we know to stack, you know, we know where to put, as you said, we know where to file this memory, 
but we don't need the emotion that's attached to it. So the best two examples I give you, is, you know, you, you get in a fight with your wife, you're arguing and you go to bed and then you wake up and you're like, you're not angry anymore, right? You go, babe, I'm so sorry about last night, right? Like I was in a bad mood. I took it out on you. Please forgive me. Like that was uncalled for because I go through and I go, man, I don't need that anger anymore. Like right. that let's okay. But the other better example is let's say you're driving home from work and you're on a major road and you're going to turn left across this major road and a big rig is coming opposite direction and you go, oh, I can make it. And you start to turn left and you very quickly realize like, oh shit, I'm not going to make it right. This truck is about to T-bone me, but you gun it and the truck air horns and misses you by just right. inches. You get through that turn and you go, holy shit, that was close. Whoa. Right. Like Jesus. And that fear response to almost getting T-boned by a big rig. Well, when you get REM sleep at night, your brain goes, okay, let's, there's fear associated with this. We don't need the fear, but man, we really need to remember when you're taking a left, don't fucking do that. Right. Yeah. You wake up in the morning, you've done everything right. You've got a good night's sleep. Now you go to take that left turn again and you go, okay, hold on. Right. Like, let me think this one through. I don't like, do I got space this time? No big rigs coming. Like I'm good. Well, what if you don't get that rim and you don't separate the tennis ball? That emotion is still stuck. So now you go to take a left and all of a sudden you have a fear response. Mm -hmm. There's no truck, no one coming, but out of the blue, you then you have this reaction, this fear reaction that doesn't match the event. Mm -hmm. Why am I reacting this way when there is no danger? Right? That because you didn't, didn't give your chance, your brain a chance to separate the emotion. Well, that is one of the signs of PTSD, right? Is now you have an emotional reaction to an event and it doesn't match. Right. And then of course, when it gets really bad, now you and I are at a bar sharing a drink, having fun and a truck drives through the parking lot. My conscious mind doesn't see it, but my subconscious does. It goes truck and I have yeah. a reaction. And now I'm at the bar and my heart rate goes up to 150 and I'm clinching my beer cup and I'm like, what the fuck? You know, like what is going on? That's PTSD, right? So what is EMDR? Eye movement, desensitization. It is your eyes traveling back and forth rapidly. This is rapid eye movement. It is REM. And so I got in this fight. Every time I tried to go to sleep, every time I'd go into REM, every time I tried to dream, my brain is like, okay. We got to get rid of this emotion. So let's redo this fight mm. and let's figure out where we went wrong. Let's deal with the anger and right. guilt and, and shame in not only losing a knife fight, but getting my partner stabbed, right? The, the guilt for not reading the situation well, right? The guilt of, of triaging that guy from a block away. So I walked into that call not ready, right? Not mentally ready. So I had all these emotions attached to this event. 
Well, every time I tried to dream, it was so violent that I was waking up. So to go to a therapist and to do basically REM while I'm awake and I can, you know, basically manually pry off the emotion from the event was just, you know, in his office, I had slept for weeks and in his office, we EMDR'd and I only got through the first 10 minutes of the call, but I was working out the emotions and the guilt and the anger and the frustration and then doing these rapid eye movements. Well, I went home that first day and while I was driving back, I felt more relaxed. I remember feeling like physically a little more calm. And the first night after doing one second of EMDR, I slept for four hours. I woke up screaming. I woke up tasting blood in my mouth, but I wasn't soaked in sweat. Right. And my heart rate was not 150. It was 120. Right. But I went from no sleep or one hour sleep to no sleep. That four hours of sleep was heaven. Right. And immediately I go, oh, I'm getting better. Right. right. I'm healing. And so after every EMDR session, I would sleep a little bit more and a little bit more. And I would wake up, I would sit up in bed, but I wasn't tasting blood in my mouth. And I wasn't trying to gouge the guy's eyes out. You know, I would sit up with a start, but not soaked in sweat. My blood pressure was now within normal range and I'd slept six hours. And the next end our session, six and a half hours, right? And, but every time just getting better and better and better. And I was like, this is heaven. Okay. Like, this is awesome. So I, I highly encourage people if there are any calls and, and you know, if you try to talk about them, you get a lump in your throat or you get angry, right? Any, you can think about and emotion is attached to it. You know, you need to do EMDR, right? Like that's how you deal with it. Look. EMDR is, is fascinating. Like you said, it's REM. Basically, it mimics yep. that REM sleep and, and which that automatically brings an issue up for us as firefighters, going back to your other passion there, sleep, because you, especially you're talking about running on engine, the busiest engine in San Diego, and yep. you're running 25, well, let's go with 25. You can just go 20 calls in a 24 hour shift. That's a lot of calls. Whether you're, whether calls. you're going to the hospital or not, that's a lot of calls. Right. And that is automatically interrupting your REM sleep. You can't, Correct. you can't avoid it. You can't get into REM. You can't get into a cycle of sleep when you're, Correct. when you're running 20 calls a day. Let's be honest. Even if you're running 10 calls and four of those calls are after 10 o'clock, you can't get into a healthy sleep cycle. It doesn't matter if you're running 20 right. or 10. It, 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 if your sleep is interrupted, your REM sleep is for lack of a better word, fucked. And Correct. if you run something that day, that's traumatic or notable or, or sticks with you, and then you get to, to, to quote unquote sleep that evening, but you don't get into that REM sleep. You can't file it away, uh, sans emotion. Right. And so now we're Correct. just starting a cycle because just like you said, you, you just, you just got off a 96 hour tour. And if you did multiple calls like that and multiple nights interrupted with REM, you've got a shit ton of stuff already built up and ca categorized incorrectly. Correct. Correct. And it's, so it's funny because 
obviously with what we see and what we do, you run a higher risk for mental health injury. And then the one thing that fixes it is a good night's sleep. You can't, and we fuck with that. Yeah. Right. So it's right. It's like, okay, I'm going to injure you. And then I'm not going to let you have a cast on your arm. Right. Like I, it's a double-edged sword. We, we get hit both ways. This job, if you saw something horrible, you might be able to make it your entire career. If every night you got a decent night's sleep and you could process the calls correctly. Um, and so I, you know, here's another thing that, and this is, I'm not knocking my department. I don't know any department that does critical incident stress management correctly. Mm -mm. And so the, I agree with you, the model, yeah, the model was, was created by Dr. Jeff Mitchell, who was a former firefighter, realized that firefighters did better after a bad call than cops because cops rolled, you know, rode mm -hmm. solo. Solo. Yeah. Yeah, but firefighters would get in the rig and then we were all talking to each other and we were decompressing without even realizing, right? right? So we create this model, but the model is you have this bad event, let's say 4 p.m. Well, the first step is what's called a diffusing. Mm -hmm. And that is to bring everyone together and go, hey, that was a tough call. We're not going to talk about it. Hmm. A little bit, like this didn't go well or, you know, this poor person died, this little kid got killed, like, that was tragic. And I'm really sorry that you guys, that happened. But what I need you to do is go home. Your shift is over. Don't stay and work. Go get sleep. And then we're going to come back two or three days later after everyone's had a chance mm -hmm. to separate that tennis ball off the stick, right? Like remove the emotion. Now let's revisit the call two days later. Now let's deep dive into what that call was about. Now I'm looking at people going, who is still angry? Who is still sad? Who is still showing emotion? They're frustrated with that call. Those are the people that I need to encourage to then go get more help. But most departments, and, and it's again, not my department's fault, but if you send us all home today, two days later, all of us are scattered, right? Mm -hmm. Like we had one guy who was in overtime. One guy was on a trade yeah. today or two days now, one guy calls out sick. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get all those people back together if I wanted to, but they're gone. And that's my only frustration with, with, you know, Mitchell's model is that you're assuming that as a crew, we're the same crew, the following shift. And that, cause we're so short-handed that rarely happens. It, it's also but assuming most of some, our departments. Sorry. Yo, go ahead. It's also assuming some personal responsibility on the firefighter part. So you're told, okay, we're going to process this after a couple of days of solid relaxation, some sleep. Yes. But let's be honest, you'd run a call that's notable like that. Quite often you're going home and you're going, fuck, I just got, I'm going to, I'm, I'm grabbing a drink. A drink turns into three or whatever it is. And then you've, then you've, you've yeah. got your sleep depressed again because you're not going to get yes. into a proper REM cycle because alcohol inhibits your Correct. REM cycle and you're going to get Correct. a bunch of light sleep, which is not going to do anything to help for again, lack of a better term, unfuck your brain. Yes. And then you're yes. going to come back and, and it's already going to be not processed correctly. And it's going to be it's not only not in process, but it's going to be multiplied. It's going to be, it's going to be that much worse two days from now. Yes. And 
all of the, all of this for me, it's just education. We, we have not, I, I, when I travel the country, I show everybody the 12 PowerPoint slides that I received in my career about mental health, right? 12 slides. And, and I just take one PowerPoint and I divide it into a little, a little, you know, four by three grid with the PowerPoints and, in, in, you know, and just to show you, this is all I've received in my entire career about mental health health. I'd never heard of EMDR. I didn't know how important sleep was. I didn't understand that drinking prevented sleep, right? I, none of that. So I, I didn't know how sleep worked. I was, you know, eight years into my career. I'm on heavy rescue. I'm working downtown on the busiest engine in the city and the fourth busiest in the country. My ego, if you'd been like, Hey man, this is not healthy. Honestly, I did say things like, well, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Right. Or right. Like I'm a, that's the price of being a badass, right? You just, and I, you mm -hmm. couldn't have told me, you could have told me I wouldn't have heard you. I didn't want to hear you. I wanted to be a badass. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's like, okay, let's at least educate everybody and at least give them the tools they need to make better decisions. Um, so yeah, that, that fascinating to me. And, and so for, okay, you didn't do EMT or you didn't do RAM cause you were drinking and you didn't separate that emotion. And now you're showing signs and you're having nightmares and you can't sleep and okay, no problem. Just go do EMDR. Right. Let's do it while you're awake. Since you're refusing to do it correctly while you're mm -hmm. asleep. Well, there's a treatment that allows you to do it while you're awake. So we'll manually pry it off since you're robbing yourself of sleep. So that to me kind of blows my mind that all of this exists. You know? Yeah. And then, well, again, it goes back to making sure people are aware of EMDR and making sure that they have access to treatment. And, right. and like you said, that foundation that you found, you, you got lucky. Same lucky. Yeah. Right. Insanely lucky. Yeah. So it's, it's oh. making sure that we can get those, the, first of all, the knowledge that this treatment is out there. And the second of all, that, that there's people that are, will work with firefighters in, in every state with this kind of a treatment. Yes. Yes. I am obsessed with that. Just get the word out. I didn't know anything about sleep and I've, I've spent the last two or three years. Like hmm. I, I track every night. I have a sleep coach. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's a, a yeah, buddy, uh, a buddy of mine, Dr. Glenn Lantry, and I'll, I'll see if I can get him on your show. He's a sleep doctor who specializes in first responders. And so I've, I worked with him for over a year and every week we would meet and he would look at my sleep patterns and, you know, give me advice and, um, I've changed my entire mindset, you know, since I'm so obsessed with mental health, it starts with a really good night's sleep. So mm -hmm. I'm, you know, and here's the thing I, I know when I go work at a busy house, okay, I know I'm going to get screwed tonight. And so I'm very aware of that. I still work the shift. I have a ton of fun. I still run a ton of calls, but if any of those calls hit me in the feels, right. I, I go, okay, well, Ram is out because I'm got to run six, eight calls after midnight, I better go EMDR this call later. So I don't deal with the consequences, you know, a month, a year, 10 years down the line. Right. So I feel so because I have the knowledge, I'm fearless because it's like, okay, I don't mind running calls all night. You know, I don't want to do it regularly now. Like I can't, I could never go back to a busy house like that and just 
run my brain into the ground. You know, I couldn't do it, but I don't shy away from working those busy shifts because I know I have EMDR in my back pocket. Right. Right. And I know how critical and submit stress diffusing and debriefings work. And I understand how important they are. I don't shy away from those either. I welcome those, you know, and I talk to my young guys because I'm a captain now. I talk to the young guys. No, these are unbelievably helpful. I thought to go back to that a little bit, just more that I've learned, right? Um, my favorite story is uh, about a, a World War II vet. And this guy is a good man and he raised his children and his grandchildren. And he's a good man, but the family has learned never bring up World War II. He, he gets very angry very quickly, right? And he doesn't like to talk about it at all. Well, now he's in his 90s and they're doing a, a reunion with his squad and his children have had enough. You know, they, every time they try to bring up him going to this reunion, he doesn't want any part of it. And he gets very grumpy. Well, they pool their resources. They buy him a ticket. You know, they don't take no for an answer. They put him on a plane and they send him to this reunion. And so, you know, they're, they're sitting around a bar and these eight vets and they're sharing stories and it finally gets around to him and he starts crying. And he says, you know, I, I never liked to talk about the war because, you know, one time my regiment, we were, we were hunkered down and we were about to take on this, you know, this, you know, the Germans were coming and he goes, a tank came through and he goes, I, I went to fire a tank, uh, anti-tank round. I missed the tank and it hit a building hmm. and a building fell down. And he goes, before that fight started, I saw two nuns and Tid and kids take shelter in that building. And he goes, I basically brought that building down on their head and I'm just, you know, devastated that I murdered those people. Well, one of the other guys starts laughing and he goes, buddy, I was there. He goes, I saw that shot. He goes, you missed that tank by a mile. He goes, but what you didn't see is as that fight started and the gunfire started, those two nuns and 10 kids ran out of the back of that building. There was no one in that building and that building came down. There was no one inside. And this guy was right. Just blown away. And then he carried all this guilt for the people who he wasn't responsible for killing. Well, what I've learned is cause I've, I've done now a lot of debriefings with a lot of departments all over the country. Kind of the big thing that happened is when a call doesn't go well, right? It's, it's, even when you run with a, like a dead kid, I mean, those can be very traumatic, mm -hmm. but it's usually what causes problems is that the call didn't go right, right? Like the ambulance took too long to get there or time to get off scene took too long, or they showed up at the hospital and the hospital wasn't ready, right? right? Like it, if we have that guilt and anger and shame that the would have, could have, should have, mm -hmm. you know, if, if this call had just gone better, there would have been a different outcome. Well, when you sit in a circle and you're diffusing and debriefing, you are literally getting the slice of the pie from everybody on that call to see a more complete picture of what happened. And the debriefings I've seen go really, really well that were hugely helpful is one, you know, the fire crew is pissed that it took the ambulance so long to get there. But then you hear from the ambulance and they say, you know, we got dispatched, but we got stuck behind a train. Right. We call dispatch. 
dispatch realized that even if they called the next closest ambulance, it still would have taken them longer. And so mm-hmm. even though we got stuck behind a trade, but it, it answers that question. Mm-hmm. Why did this take so long? Right. That kind of thing. And I've seen just angered frustration dissipate immediately when you get to learn, you get to hear everyone's perspective on the call. Um, and so that is, that is really what debriefings are meant for. And so I tell in my people, Hey, you might be sitting on that piece of information that relieves the stress for somebody else. Right. You might be holding that. Hey man, I saw the two nuns and 10 kids run mm-hmm. out of the back of the building so that somebody else isn't angry. So you don't have to be angry at that call. You don't have to be frustrated. If a de- debriefing or diffusing is ever called, go because I don't want to be responsible for sitting on information that can make somebody else feel better. If that makes sense. Yeah. And, but it's, excuse me. It's, as you said, it's all about how it's done because these done improperly. And I've had a number of people come on this show and say, yeah, they made us do X, Y, and Z and <laughs> yep. uh, you know, F SISM, I'm never doing it again. And it's yep. not so much F SISM. It's the way it was implemented more than Correct. anything. I'm not saying it's a perfect system and when it's implemented right, it works every time. It doesn't, but it only works as well as the people that, that are involved in it. And so if you've got a, if you've got people that can lead it properly, if you've got the, the scene and the, and the setting correct, it can benefit everybody. And you don't, you don't turn to the, to the newest guy, the youngest rookie and say, Hey, what are your thoughts about this call? What went wrong? What, what went right? right? And then this guy's like, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say what went wrong in front of my captain because I think he fucked right up. And and so then you get, oh, I, I'm good. I have nothing to say. And then, and then the senior guy says the same thing and then everyone follows suit. So that's, you know, it's all about how it's implemented. That is so, so important. The, whoever runs it has to be really, really well trained. Mm -hmm. And I, I I love sharing the story. I was in Pennsylvania giving a talk and they had had a critical incident. And so they invited me, they go, will you come and sit in on this? You know, and I'd already given my talk. So everyone in the department knew who I was. So I was honored. I was like, absolutely. I'll sit in on this. So I sat in out at a firehouse and they brought in this guy to run a system. And this dude was a therapist. He was probably a hundred pounds overweight. Hmm. He was bald on top with a ponytail. He had an earring. Um, he had his shirt buttoned to like three buttons, just a Terry chest with like four gold chains. Everyone's lost walked, interest in what he has to say already. Immediately he walked to the room and I went, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> oh no. And he sat down and he goes, all right, guys, we're here to talk about our emotions. And you know what? We might cry today, but that's okay. And, no and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh God, like, yeah, no. These guys, I'm not kidding you. They practically picked him up mm-hmm. and threw him out of the station and he bounced off the hood of his car. Yeah. And they turn around and go, you know, Sidham is stupid. And I was like, ah, guys, like, damn it. Yeah. So yeah, there, there's plenty of potential for doing them poorly. And I understand why they've gotten a bad rep, but I just feel so bad when I know how they're supposed to work. I know how effective they can be. And even my own department doesn't embrace them correctly right they usually will try to do a full diffusing on the first day and decide who they need to follow up with 
by listening to everyone's stories and, and you know, people are angry, but I'm going, Hey man, you haven't given them a chance to sleep Mm-mm. and separate those emotions. And then they go, Hey, if you want to go home, you can go home. If you want to stay, you can stay. And most of the guys are like, no, we'll stay. Either they run calls all night. Right. I'm like, well, now you're so fucked. Right. Like, right. You don't know about EMDR. Mm-hmm. You didn't give yourself a chance to REM. Nope. You didn't to breathe properly. Like, oh. so, you know, doing podcasts like this, if there are any chiefs listening, right? Like really understanding what you're doing in mental health is so important uh, to do it correctly. It is, it so, is, is paramount. Yeah. It's paramount. It, it, so you do we'll go all the way back. You do this EMDR, these sessions for, for a bit of time. How long does it take to get you physically and emotionally ready to get back on the job? I returned to work four months to the day. So I got stabbed June 24th. I walked back into the firehouse October 24th. Um, but you know, not, so I EMDR'd that stabbing and it took us months to get through that, right? There was a lot of guilt mm-hmm. and anger and shame. Um, you know, one of the things was I, a catch when I got stabbed, I decided I didn't want to, I just, I decided I had to stay on my feet mm-hmm. because if I went down, then that guy will know he got me right. So I stayed up. And I was tripoding because I couldn't breathe. Well, I held on to that railing that we talked about. Mm-hmm. I held on to that railing and I would not let go. And in my head, somehow I got the thought, if I let go of this railing, I'll die. Mm. Right. So just to give you an idea, like where I'm at mentally, the wheels have come off the bus, right? Like I am panicked. I'm scared. And I'm holding onto this railing. Well, Alex, he, he crawled off the pile and he was, I mean, blood was pumping out of his body, right? He was bleeding to death. I needed the trauma bag because in our trauma bag, I've got a quick clot and I've got tourniquets and I've got trauma bandages. I didn't bring the trauma bag with me because my patient wasn't a trauma patient. He was a drunk male who was walking and talking. And you parked a city block away. We parked a city block away. Well, I'm seeing him bleed out. I know that I need to give myself, uh, I need to do a three-sided occlusive dressing Mm -hmm. and I might have to needle decompress myself. All of that is in the trauma bag. Well, we're sitting there, we called cover now and we're waiting for help to come. And I'll tell you, they got there fast. But the time it took from when you call for help and then you're waiting for help to arrive, that was a lifetime. Yeah. Well, I'm holding onto the railing and I remember I was looking a block away at our rig and the railing didn't go all the way to the fire engine. It stopped 30 feet short. And in my head, I said, well, I can't get to the trauma bag because I can't let go of the railing because if I let go of the railing, I'll die. Mm-hmm. So I didn't help my partner or myself. And then the other thing you learn, right? When you're on an airplane and the oxygen masks fall out, what do they say? Help yourself. Put the mask on yourself so that you can help somebody else. Right. But in my head, I'm going, even if I have the gear, 
if I had the gear, technically I should treat myself first, mm -hmm. make sure that it doesn't, my, my pneumothorax doesn't turn into a tension pneumothorax, but who takes care of themselves before their partner. Right. Right. And so I should have helped my partner first and I made it work. Like I, I grabbed gauze out of our drug box and, you know, I shoved them onto his shoulder. But in my head, I'm like, I can't, I need to fix myself, but I should fix him first. But theoretically I should fix myself. And, but I went in this circle yeah. where I didn't help either of us. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's really hard to describe that panic, right? And that thought process. And so really the guilt of like, I jumped into a knife fight. I dragged my partner into it. He almost died because of me. And then I didn't fucking help him. That's heavy. Yeah. Heavy. So it took me, it took me months to EMDR that, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I was sleeping better and better and better, but it took me months to deal with the guilt and the shame and the anger of that aspect of the fight. But what I got to tell you is when that finally, I felt like, okay, I got a full night's sleep. I could talk through the entire call, not break down in tears. I can tell I, I feel a lot of this guilt and anger. But then I said, you know what I want to do is I want to EMDR the other calls, hmm. the ones that I've been carrying with me for 20 years, mm -hmm. right? I want to EMDR the little girl that's seized to death and no treatment, nothing I did stopped the seizure. And I drove her to the hospital and, you know, they pronounced her brain dead on arrival. I want to EMDR the woman that was gang raped and they left objects inside of her body, hmm. right? Like, I mean, I'm like, oh, I have this powerful tool with me. Like, let me EMDR all the rest of these calls, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've made my way through about five or six other calls. Well, October 24th, when I walked back into the firehouse, I got to tell you, man, I was mentally stronger mm -hmm. than I had ever been. Because one, I had unloaded all of the emotions for every call that has ever bothered me. I'm starting with a blank slate. And I know going forward, any call that I run, that's a bad one. If I can't sleep on it, I'll EMDR it. I, to this day, I feel invincible, right? Like I am earless. Like let's run a dead baby. I'm not happy about it. I don't want to do it, but I'm not scared of it because I know that I, I know what to do with that emotion. Yeah, right? I know tool. how to. I got, right. I got the tools. And so I walked through uh, my first session four months later, just stronger than I had ever been mentally and physically stronger than I had ever been. Um, and again, something I want to share with our people, you know, you don't have to carry these calls for the rest of your career. So then how does the speaking gig come about? How do you start talking about it? How do you start sharing this story over continents and countries and states? Yeah, it's such a cool, fun ride. Um, one of the things I was doing while I was healing, and initially when I could not sleep, I remember thinking, I don't know when this trial is going to come out. 
but I, I had heard that one of the, the tools that a defense attorney will use is they wait till the last possible second to, to file, right. Or to, mm-hmm. to defend so that everyone's fuzzy on the details. Mm-hmm. Now that was my fear, which is looking back a little irrational, you know, to, Defense doesn't get to pick when the court case happens, but in my head, I remember thinking, I have to write everything down mm. so that I will be ready for the court case. So I'm journaling in the middle of the night, writing down every detail I could think of. Um, what was interesting is as I was getting EMDR and I was sleeping more and more and more, when I was awake though, I would, I would journal and I noticed my handwriting was getting cleaner Right. Like I was writing like a crazy person while I was going through the nightmares, you know, my R's were backwards. I was writing blood, like it was terrifying looking, mm-hmm. but as I was getting help, my, my writing looked better and better and cleaner and cleaner. Well, I wanted to write an article and I was, I had learned about EMDR and how effective it was. And so Jim's magazine, uh, it's a national magazine, but their headquarters is, is in San Diego. So I reached out to them and I said, Hey, can I write an article for you guys? And they said, yeah. So my article came out in February, 2016. And I was on the cover, which was cool. I was on the cover of gems. Um, well, this lady called me, this is, you know, June, 2016. She goes, look, I read your article. I really liked it. I'm putting on a conference in New Jersey and I'd like you to be the keynote. Mm. And I basically want you to talk about your article, you know, talk about this event that you've been through. I said, well, ma'am, you know, how do you know I'm any good at speaking? And I said, well, I don't, but you know, I, you're a good writer. And so I, I'm taking a chance on you, but you'll be the keynote. You're going to speak to about 400 people. Mm-hmm. She goes, well, what do you charge? And I said, uh, a hundred dollars. She goes, done. So she paid for my airfare. She paid for my hotel. And then I gave a, I gave a 90 minute talk, uh, based on this article and looking back, it was pretty rough, right? But it was the, the, basically the framework of what I do now. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know this, but people go to conferences from other conferences, right? And they go and they look for people they like, you know, talent, uh, stories, ideas, Mm -hmm. and then they bring them to their, to their conference. And I didn't know that. But I got a call shortly after my New Jersey, that was in November of 2016. I got a call from a couple of the people. Hey, we'd like you to come back. And, you know, we have a conference in Pennsylvania. We have a conference in Florida. And they said, you know, what do you charge? And, and I said, a hundred dollars. And one guy was really cool. He's like, dude, I'm not going to pay a hundred bucks. He goes, I'll, I'll pay you $300. And I'm like, holy shit. Like oh, 300 bucks. Perfectionist. <laughs> I was like, wow. And he goes, well, send me an invoice. I said, okay. And I said, I don't have an invoice. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, well, I'll make one. And I'll send it to you. And then you sign it, send it right. Back. I said, okay. So he sent me this invoice and it said, speaking fee, $750 with a $450 discount <sighs> for 300 bucks. And I was like, holy shit, I could be charging $750. Like, wow. Well, eventually I, somebody recommended a manager. So I. <laughs> talked to a manager. I said, ma'am, I said, I don't know if you can help me, but I'm starting to get invitations, you know, all over the place. 
to be the keynote speaker at, at these conferences. And she said, well, what are you charging? And I said, well, man, I don't mean to brag, but I charge $300, but I'm confident I can get 750. And she laughed and she goes, dude, the going rate is 2,500 bucks. <laughs> and I go, ma'am, there is no one on earth that would pay me that much money for a 90 minute talk. Like, no. But she goes, well, that's why you hired me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, lady, like you're crazy, but all right. And so sure enough, you know, uh, she goes, you, you need to have a website. And I'm like, really? I need to have a what? Like for what? She goes, well, you know, people need to research you and right. look at who you are, what you do. And so I laughed a little bit. You said you would look at the website. Um, but yeah, then all of my, all of my contracts go through her and she handles booking my airfare, my hotel. And, and then it just slowly built, you know, one turned into three, three turned into eight, right. Eight turned into a dozen, um, in 20, so February of 2020, I was booked all over the world, all of 2020. And I was actually filling out paperwork on a plane. I was flying back from Canada. I was filling out paperwork on a plane to take a leave of absence from my job mm -hmm. because I was about to just go on this amazing trip. And then obviously, right, COVID just mm -hmm. shut everything down. And I'm so glad it did because it reminded me my primary job, right, right, is to be a firefighter, be good at my job. The other thing is a fun side hustle, not to be confused with my profession. Right. Um, and all, all of these trips I had planned all over the world ended up being on Zoom, which just bummed me out. You know, yeah. I did a, oh, I was so bummed. Um, but it was fun. And that's, that's how it turned into just this, this thing, you know, that, I get asked to speak everywhere now. It's so cool. So <clears throat> excuse me. Long story. No, you're good. So you mentioned the trial. When, when did the trial take place? The trial was, uh, February, 2016. So what is that? Eight months after the event, the most intense, that was so gnarly, um, because it was a high profile case. That courtroom was packed mm -hmm. and there were news crews, you know, I mean, just lighting the back row. Like it was a circus. Um, the gnarliest thing that came from it, more and more video mm -hmm. was released during the trial. And there was a video angle that I had never seen before, but it showed my captain pushing the guy over the, over the feet, you know, the park bench. Well, that was the defense attorney's primary showing that we started the fight. Right. Up until that point, the news crews are hailing us as heroes. Alex and I are going to luncheons and mm -hmm. breakfasts. We are. Right. We're, we're yeah, Alex being adorned with medal after medal for saving my life. Mm -hmm. Um, he got three different medals of valor. Uh, we're both awarded them purple heart from the, uh, BFW, like just, it was surreal, but the media latched onto that and suddenly the perspective changed and the media is now saying, you know, 
firefighters pick a fight with a homeless man, right? Like right. suddenly the dynamic has changed and we're no longer heroes, we're bullies. Mm -hmm. And guys on my job really started harassing my captain, blaming him mm. for us getting hurt. And the wildest thing stacked, right? At the moment, the knife went into my body, the four of us were standing within three feet of each other, right? I'm on the other side of the railing, but my three guys are standing right behind me. We're all three feet apart. Well, as the years passed, my partner and my engineer, Charlie, they have, they did not get mental health help. They did not do EMDR and they tried to manage it on their own. Mm -hmm. All of us are captains now, but those two guys who were on the rescue team, who were active in our department, taught in our academy, taught a bunch of classes, were really engaged. They both now work at very quiet firehouses. They do their job, they go home. My captain started drinking heavily after the, after the trial. Mm -hmm. A year later, February, 2017, he gets in a domestic dispute with his girlfriend and he hit her mm. and he was arrested. And, and a year after my trial, I'm back in court mm. and I'm testifying on behalf of my captain. And that's tricky because I don't want to condone domestic violence, but I'm trying to explain to the judge what is going on here. Right. And the, the. The judge, it was a wobbler. He could have made it a misdemeanor or made it a felony. And so I'm in court trying to explain to the judge what, what all of this is. And I'm, but I'm babbling, you know, I don't understand how to explain what EMDR is and PTSD and, right. and all of these things. The judge was very nice. And he said, you know, I appreciate you coming here and sharing your, you know, your point of view. And then he hit the gavel and he hit my captain with a felony. Mm -hmm. So my captain lost his job. Now, thankfully he didn't have to go to prison, but he was assigned an ankle bracelet. Mm -hmm. He's lost his job as a San Diego fire captain, right? Like, so the outcome, four of us standing within three feet of each other, right? I, I get good mental health help and I get to travel and speak. I still teach at the academy. I help out in our medic program. I'm involved in every way I can. And we've lost three, one completely, who's now a felon and two who are, I would argue, less engaged than they once were. And, and so again, just to emphasize how important mental health help is and right. getting good treatment, because there's an example of, of one event with four very different outcomes. And I assume stabby, as you affectionately call him, was found guilty. Guilty. Uh, Sentenced to 24 years, six months for two counts of attempted murder. Um, he has to serve at least 80%. So even with good behavior, he'll be out in 20 years, three months, something like that. Yeah. And, uh, I scheduled to retire, uh, like 20 years, one month. So I, I'm off the job about two months before he gets out of prison. So there you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Let's get back. Let's get to my last two questions. 
McFarland. I've termed, I, excuse me, I titled this show, The Things We All Carry. And it's based yeah. off of a novel by uh, Tim O'Brien. And the book is yeah. called The Things They Carried. And it, and it discusses um, a platoon in Vietnam, basically, and, and the tools they carry into battle, but the, what they bring out of battle as well. And so I thought that it, it parlayed well into what we're talking about on this show. Um, and so I like to ask everybody about an everyday carry. What is something that you carry every day with you that if you don't have it, you're going to end up feeling naked? Ooh. I have gotten really good at mindfulness, staying present. I do that in my hour drive to work and from work. I purposely try to get my head in a good space. Um, so that hour drive is my tool. I journal, uh, I, I love to journal now. That was not something I ever did, but after my injury, I found I really enjoyed journaling. Um, my journal's right here somewhere. Um, so that for me is that hour ride with my mindfulness, you know, practices. Uh, that is a tool that has really helped keep me on the straight and narrow. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I, I think that's the one thing I try to explain when people go, oh, I don't really have anything physical. It doesn't have to be physical. It's just something you carry with you. And, and a thought or a, a mindfulness practice is something that you carry with you. Yeah. So what uh, about a book? The things they carry, oh, what was it? Oh, buddy, okay. Go ahead. They, no, the, 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 the book the is called the, the Things They Carried, and it's by Tim O'Brien. Tim O'Brien. So, um, I am obsessed now with, uh, with audiobooks because it's an hour of just listening to people who are so much smarter than me. Mm. Um, so I'm going to order that book and it'll be one that I, that I listen to on my way to work. So I love brain books, you know, how the brain works. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a book I'm currently listening to. I'm only 5% in, but it's called Made to Stick. Made to Stick. Uh, by Chip Heat. Okay. And Dan Heat. So what's cool stuff, like how, how come, how come the, and they give an example of like, uh, the myth that Halloween candy, somebody would put a razor blade. Right. In candy. Well, it was so effective. In the eighties, it scared the shit out of people. And to this day, like people are worried about their kids trick or treating, but they looked into it and that has never happened in the history of ever. So how come that, that myth dicks, mm -hmm. right? Like how come the myth that you can see the, uh, great wall of China from space? Like, why does that stick? Right. When basically it's less than the length of a freeway, right? The width of a freeway, in which case. Everyone from space can see every freeway on it, right? Exactly. Like, how come that sticks in your brain? So I, I'm only 5% in, but I, I love how it, how it started. Um, two books, one that I absolutely loved that really helped me with the guilt I carried about holding onto that handrail is called Meditations on Violence by Rory Miller. Okay. And this guy is a, a corrections officer. And if he would say, you know, in every sense of the word, he is a, a combat expert. 
but he breaks it down. And he goes, you know, the, the chasm between training on the mats, you know, martial arts and then real violence is a very real thing. Mm-hmm. And he said, he, he's been in five real fights to the death and none of them went well. And none of them, his training didn't help them on any of them. Um, and so it's just a fascinating book. And, and he shares the story of a, he's walking the halls of his prison and he, he's drinking a cup of coffee, you know, he's starting his shift and he didn't know that at 0900, all the prisoners were going to riot. And so he says, he's walking the halls, that clock strikes nine and the prison just goes sideways. And all of a sudden three prisoners charge at him. And he said, the first thing that popped into his brain was that the coffee cup belonged to the prison. And if it broke, he would get in trouble. <laughs> and so he's, he's fighting three guys protecting the coffee cup. Right. Instead of himself. Instead of himself, instead of throwing the coffee in someone's face, right. cracking it over the head and using the sharp edges to drive right. people, he's like, oh no, I have to protect this coffee cup. And, and that one story really helped me with me holding onto that handrail because that my first thought was, oh man, I can't go down. I got to hold on to this handrail. And it doesn't make sense, right? Like that doesn't, there's no equation between handrail and life. Right. But in my head, I'm like, oh man, I got to hold on to this thing. So it, stuff like that, just learning how the brain works when it is under extreme stress. And, and stack, I got to tell you, it's my favorite question. When I travel and give stories or, you know, share stories, people always come up and share the stories of their violence that they've been involved in. And my favorite question is in the heat of it, did you do anything weird? Did you make any weird decision? And honestly, like a hundred percent of the time they go, yeah, I, one guy was getting stabbed and the monitor was there and the guy goes, oh man. This monitor costs $15,000. If it breaks, I'm going to get in trouble. He used his body as a human shield to protect the monitor from the knife. Right. So, and I go, yeah, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Like that weird right. decision-making process. Right. That's another good book. Um, especially for any first responders who, who've, who've experienced real violence. I think that book does a really good job of helping you understand your brain, you know, when you are in it. Right. Um, so there's, that's just two. I can, I, I've got a dozen on my, that I'm currently, I'm currently actively listening to like six books yeah. at the same time. So I get, I, I get that completely. Anyway. I'm going to assume yeah. with your deep so dive on books, I really like, I'm, I'm going to assume on your deep dive for sleep that you've gotten into Matthew Walker. Oh yeah. Matt Walker's awesome. All right. Um, and, and then yeah. a book about the brain, there was a, a fascinating little book I read and it's an easy read, but it's fascinating. And it kind of turns some of the research on the brain upside down and it's called seven and a okay. half lessons oh, yeah. of, the, of the brain. Okay. I'm writing that down. And you might find that one pretty fascinating. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Awesome. Okay. I, saw, I saw it as a more hopeful image of the brain, if that makes any sense. And maybe after you read it or you yeah, hear yeah. it, you tell me what you think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, as a, so I'm a, a captain, but I've only been a captain for a year. Um, and so I really wanted to put some effort into leadership 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, um, Admiral William McRaven, the guy that did that talk, uh, at a college graduation on why you should make your bed. Right. Um, he has books that are, I swear to God, they're, they're written like children's books for adults. Like <laughs> each chapter is two pages. It's a story with a parable. And I mean, you can consume it in one sitting, right? You can sit down for lunch. By the time you're done with your sandwich, you've read the whole book cover to cover. Um, so he's got another one called the wisdom of the bullfrog. Okay. Um, that's a oh, guy. I could listen to that guy talk all day long. <laughs> um, so that's a leadership book. I really like that. One. I'll, I'll put them all out there. That th- those are, I mean, I love every one of them that you put out there. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I could keep going to leadership books. I've read probably 10 of those and then anything on the brain, atomic habits. Mm-hmm. It didn't start with you, which it didn't start with you. It was more about ACEs mm-hmm. and how genetics get yeah. passed down. So I, I think that's fascinating. Uh, Blake by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh my oh, God. Blake is wonderful. Yes. Uh, you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? Oh yeah. Well, he shares the story of a fire captain who makes a split second decision mm-hmm. and saves all his guy's life. And then, right. I'm like, oh, I love this guy. So right. there's another, how your brain works. Oh, there you go. Stuff. So, well, sir, I appreciate this conversation very much. Yeah. We, two hours, man. I'm sorry. That was a long one. No, don't apologize at all. This is perfect. I love it. I, I, I'm not afraid to put out long episodes. So it, this is a, uh, this is perfect. I, I appreciate every second of it. Oh. Dak, thanks for the invite, man. This is great. Are, are so, you a speaker? Do you speak it? I, I haven't, I haven't got on board the speaking circuit yet. I need to, I, it's something that is a, is a personal demon of mine that I need to just say, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. I think we all come at some point we all start with this. What do I have to offer kind of thing? Right. And that's, right. that's kind of where I am. All right. So what I, I sit here behind this mic and I, and I have you guys tell the story. So what, what do I have to do? You know? So it's, it's, it's something that I've been considering and I need to get on board with. Well, just because you just talk to so many of us, you get this awesome funnel to just fill with knowledge and you get to sit through it all. And, and buddy, I mean, I would love to hear what you have to say about what you've learned from all of us. You know, if you could summarize us all down to three or four things you've learned from each of us, that would be amazing. I'd, I'd pay good money to hear that. The, the one thing I, and, and I don't give away too much about it if I don't want to sell it, but uh, anyway, the one thing I did learn is that every time I listen to a story, I go, ah, there's the piece of me that's in that story. And so that's fascinating yeah. to me. Um, but uh, tell us where, where listeners can find you. So my Ben Vernon is my name. So www.benvernon.com is my website that, um, it gives you the opportunity to contact me or my manager and, um, articles. I, my intention is to put some training videos on there, things I've learned. Right. But, uh, that's got, that's how you reach me is that website. So, and I'm Ben, benvernon.com, which is, it's weird to have a, my own domain Your name. Your own domain. Anyway, so Ben, yeah, it's weird. I, oh, it's weird. Any, uh, any I social media presence? Point. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I have Ben Vernon public speaker, but I honestly, I don't do a lot on that page. If you okay. just reach out to me, Ben Vernon on Facebook uh, and Instagram, but, uh, yeah, well, that's, that's me. And I'm, I'm, I, you don't have to call me to book a speaking. If you want to 
call and talk because you need to deal with your PTSD, man. I'm there for you as well. So awesome. Um, reach out via email, but I'll, we'll talk on the phone and I'm, I'll listen to anybody's story if they want to share some issues they're going with or, um, especially if they've been attacked and they want to talk about yeah. that. I'm, I'm, I can, I can help. So. Well, like I said, I appreciate the time. Oh, I will, yeah. I will let you know, I'll give you a heads up on when this one's coming out. It's going to be probably middle of January just cause I'm, I'm on a little break for the holidays okay. right now. Um, and then oh, oh. I, I'll do a little social media blitz and I'll let you know about that as well. So, so you can see the little clips I put out and, uh, we'll go from there. Perfect. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was fun. All righty, sir. I appreciate it. And, uh, if you just hang out for a minute after I, after I hit stop here, that way we can get everything downloaded. All right, well, we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other. <laughs>